Well, amen. Good morning. Are you ready to study God's Word this morning? Amen. Well, let's get our Bibles out. Open to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, you'll find our scripture today on page 1207 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, if you are visiting with us, we have just concluded preaching through the book of Ruth and are now back to our ongoing study in uh, the Gospel of Luke. We are preaching just uh, verse by verse, text by text through the Gospel of Luke. And we find ourselves picking back up where we left off in Luke 18 at a marvelous place where Jesus, uh, really this chapter is uh, a spectacular chapter. I'm so looking forward to uh, going through chapter 18 with you. Um, It's just done my soul so much good to be able to dwell on this parable that we'll look at today all week. And so I'm, I'm excited about what God has at the same time, I know that it's been a, a crazy week for us. Uh, I, I'm just so appreciative of uh, so many, so much I could say about uh, this amazing church in the midst of uh, the storm and all that we have learned uh, since Katrina. Uh, it's just truly uh, a blessing and a privilege. I mean, we uh, it's a lot goes into um, just... Even these Sunday mornings, it's a lot that goes into it. And so, for example, when the church is closed for several days because of the storm, um, the, the choir's unable to meet and practice. I'm so grateful for Jenny and Craig and just them get spending time. You know, you don't just wake up in the morning and decide to come and sing a couple songs. It doesn't work like that. It takes a lot of time and energy and practice and preparation. I'm just grateful for them. Uh, standing in the gap and getting that um, together for us. And for our staff, I just want to say, um, just God bless you. Our church staff just did an amazing job of checking on everyone during the storm and and just calling all of our our widows and our shut-ins and taking care of people's needs. And it was just a, a beautiful thing. And our deacons, thank you for all of your work and care it's just uh, marvelous. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that there's some someone in this room somewhere who uh, needed help and didn't receive it. But I can tell you that if that's the case, I did not know about it. As far as I know, they were on top of every single thing that I know of, and I'm very grateful for that. So, thank you, thank you. It's a it's just a blessing. So let's study God's word today in Luke 18. Uh, we're going to see that really in in just in God's wisdom and in His providence that we would be in this particular passage of Scripture, uh, the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, Don't you know that we've spent four weeks really getting to know the plight of a widow? And so God's really just used the book of Ruth to set our hearts and minds in the right place to be able to approach this parable and and, uh, spare me having to spend a lot of time uh, digging into all that it means to be a widow in a, a middle, middle Eastern culture, even today, but much less in the first century, how difficult that was. And so with all these uh, uh, things in mind, let's begin reading Luke 18, beginning in verse 1, a short parable as Jesus will instruct us as only he can. The Bible says, Then he spoke a parable to them. This is Jesus speaking, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. 
saying, There was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he could not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, now I pray that You will... Give us ears to hear. We need your help, Lord, to see the amazing truths that are contained within this parable, Lord God. You are the master teacher. You are the amazing illustrator and storyteller. And Father, help us now. Give us hearts to receive. Give us minds to comprehend. Help this word to come alive in our heart that it may change the way we approach you, the way we see you the way we respond to You, the way we seek You. For Your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in order to understand this parable, we're going to have to do a little homework. We're going to have to back up a minute because apart from context, you're going to be completely and utterly lost. I will uh, confess to you that this is a, a parable that is most often taken out of context. Uh, it is most often uh, the, the true glory and splendor of this parable is usually missed because it is just sort of, uh, I think one of the reasons is because it happens to fall at the beginning of a chapter. Uh, and therefore, it, we tend to see this as a self-contained sort of the beginning of a new thing. But this parable comes in the midst of an ongoing conversation. And that is what we have to see. Notice back in chapter 17, verse 20, that really this conversation starts with a question when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So all of this is under the context of a question of when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus is having a conversation with some Pharisees, also with his disciples. And so he's interacting back and forth between these two groups. The rest of the chapter contains Jesus' teaching about the end times, basically about the second coming. That's what he's talking about as he's concluding his statements in chapter 17. And what he's saying is, is that while we wait for that day, the day that he'll return, the day that he'll come back and receive us and, and take us to be with him, as we wait for that day, he's telling us there's going to be opportunity for discouragement. That there's going to be days that are long. There's going to be times when you and I feel like God has forgotten us. When we feel like our prayers aren't being heard. When we feel like our needs aren't being met. When we feel like everything that we touch goes wrong. And this is why he says in chapter 17 verse 22, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. You see, he's talking to people who are in his presence. And there's this great comfort because there's Jesus right there. And He's in front of them. And so they're not worried about today because they're there with Christ. 
But he's saying the day is going to come when it's going to seem as if there's distance. You're going to long to see this day that I'm speaking of, but you won't see it. And so he's really teaching about what do you do in the, in the midst of those days? What do you do in the meantime? Because remember, he's still trying to get his disciples to understand that he has come to die, that he must suffer and die. He must be rejected by this current generation. That is his purpose in coming. And so they're still trying to get their heads wrapped around that. So there he is standing with them. Everything seems good. And he's here. But he, in his love and in his, in, in his grace and mercy, he's preempting what is ahead for them. And that's, that's where we find ourselves. That's where we are today. That, that so many times we, we long for the days of the Son of Man. We long for the return of the Savior. We, we long for sickness and suffering to end. Don't we? We, we, we long for the time when we'll no longer have to watch people we love suffer with cancer or disease or sickness. We long for a time when we'll no longer have to worry about a hurricane being in the Gulf and whether or not it's going to hit us or hurt us or kill us. We won't have to worry, but we long for that. We, we long for days when, when children won't rebel, when we won't have great sorrow over the broken relationships of the people that we love so much. We long For the day when there won't be the pain of marriages that are dissolving and struggling. See, we long for that. And we know that that's coming. And it's either going to come the moment we take our last breath on this earth as a a saved child of God. And we're going to be in the presence of God instantly at that moment. Or maybe today. Maybe today. Maybe in the fullness of time, in God's wisdom, he's determined that, you know, Labor Day weekend be the be the day to come back. That'd be the day. You know, they just, you know, those people in in Gulfport have just gone through that uh, Hurricane Isaac scenario. And I think today would be a good day. Maybe today. Maybe during this service, he'll come back. Maybe. See, Jesus says that those who are His are going to long for that. That's one of the ways that we know we're His, is that we, we long for that. But it's not yet. It's already, but it's not yet. And we get impatient. And so many times, those with immature faith, those... New believers just learning to walk in the Lord will be tempted to throw in the towel, be, be tempted to, to give up in their bewilderment. So many times we can look with earthly eyes around us, can we not? And see almost it's checkmate. There's no way out. There's no way God can solve this problem that I'm facing. But that statement is just so ridiculous in light of what God's Word tells us. But in our eyes, in our own limited ability to understand and comprehend, we can convince ourselves that as saved people, we're, we're just as hopeless as we were when we were lost. So Jesus is instructing us with care and with love as, as only a, a, a good 
God would. He hasn't forgotten us. God, God hasn't, hasn't forgotten His promise to us. He, he's not busy doing other things. He hasn't changed His mind about what He said. When that perfect time comes, He's going to return. And what does He tell the, what does he tell the disciples in chapter 17, verse 24? He says this, and it's going to be as lightning that flashes out of one part under the heaven shines to another part under heaven. In other words, in an instant, in the flash of lightning, he's going to return. And when he does, everything's going to change in that instant. In that instant. So, that's sort of the the context leading up to this little simple parable, it would seem. And notice how the parable ends. Notice what it says in verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes. So, in other words, this parable is bookended by... Discussions about the second coming. So if you try to understand this parable apart from the second coming, you're going to get yourself in all sorts of trouble. And that's where uh, so many times people make a mistake is they just overlook the context of what's being talked about here. And it's not so much that uh, it's so often wrong. It's just that you miss the best part. You can just take something and miss the best part because you don't see the context. So, let's look at this parable. Look at verse 1. Very unique thing about this parable. Jesus will rarely just right off the bat give the the punchline. Usually he, he gets us hanging. Usually he sort of builds up to. In this parable, he just tells us in the very beginning what he's doing and why he's saying this. He says, he spoke to them saying that men... Always ought to pray and not lose heart. So this is already right off the bat. It's instruction to help us to pray and not to lose heart, not to get discouraged. So again, it it flows right in with everything that's going on. Now let's look at verse 2. So here's what he says. There wasn't a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, understand that whenever you're looking at a parable, I always say this, you want to... Keep Make the, the main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. Don't go trying to make things that aren't there. Just, it's pretty simple. But at the same time, also you have to understand that Jesus doesn't just use random language. That when Jesus describes a person, he's very specific and very particular in the wording that he uses because he wants to convey a very specific image. This isn't just a judge in just a city. Now notice, so I just want you to see something. Based on verse 2, here's what I already know about the parable. The city is utterly unimportant. Why? Because it's just a city. But the judge is important because look at the, the, the language that's used to give us information about the judge. So there's just a certain random city. But then there's a judge, and Jesus tells us he did not fear God nor regard men. Now, he didn't fear God. Why does Jesus tell us that? Well, we know that from Proverbs 1, that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. We know that. So he's not a wise person, uh, but he's a foolish person because he, he doesn't fear God. We also know from Proverbs 2 that when a person seeks wisdom, the Bible says, then you'll gain understanding of the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. So this is a judge who is not only foolish 
in, in his approach to life and his approach to being a judge and in every way, but he's also ignorant of the ways and, and things of God. So he, he lacks wisdom and knowledge and he also lacks understanding uh, about the Lord. So he wants us to know that. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, nor does he regard man? This means, uh, this phrase means to, to be shameless. In other words, when Jesus says he doesn't regard man, that means he, he doesn't have any shame. He, he, it's beyond not caring what other people think. He literally just has no shame. He doesn't, he's ignorant about the things of God. He's ignorant in general. And he really doesn't care about people at all. And he has no shame. That means he will say or do anything, whatever he feels like, in his ignorance. So this is sort of the stage that's set for us to understand where Jesus is going. Here is this ignorant, arrogant judge in some random city who is shameless in his behavior. He is wicked. He's wicked. If he's ignorant of God... And he has no regard for humanity. He's wicked. Verse 3. Now there was a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. So now we're introduced to this new character, the widow. Now we know that widows would be, basically it would be the most, the most pitiful predicament you could be in in this society. We know that. We've, we've studied that. We've seen that. That you'd have no rights. You'd have no... Especially in this context, this legal context, here's what you need to understand. A widow couldn't even approach the judge, couldn't go before the judge. A widow couldn't testify in court. Women weren't allowed to. So her husband would have to go. So if you don't have a husband, you basically don't have a voice in this culture. So she is absolutely... Uh, at the mercy of the culture, with no rights, no one has any regard for her. And not only that, but she she now has to, to face this judge who is wicked and shameless and could care less. So the fact that maybe he might have pity on her because she's a widow, that seems like a long shot. But she came to him, she said... Get justice for me from my adversary. I want you to notice what Jesus says. He said, she came to him. She came to him. In other words, the widow went to where the judge is. The widow stood outside his house or waited outside his office. The widow orchestrated her schedule around where the judge might be. The widow took it upon herself to be where the judge is going to be so that she could make her voice heard before the judge. In other words, in our context, the widow was blowing up his cell phone, clogging up his inbox. She was uh, trending with him on Twitter. She was posting on his Facebook. She was driving him crazy. But the point is, she did it. She took it upon herself. She was the one who, she wasn't sitting at home bemoaning the fact that she was uh, in this difficult situation and that no one was there to help her and that there was someone taking advantage of her and that injustice had happened. She responded to her circumstances by going into the presence of the judge. 
That's important. Verse 4. Now, he would not for a while, but afterwards, he said within himself. So, in other words, she's screaming for justice. And Jesus said, but he wouldn't for a while. For a while. Semicolon. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man. Now, that's interesting. Right there. Because not only is he wicked... But he knows he's wicked and he knows how he's wicked. He tells himself, though I don't fear God, though I don't regard man, though I'm fully aware of the rotten person that I am, I'm fully aware of all of my deficiencies, all of my arrogance, all of my shamelessness. What am I going to do? Verse 5. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now, this judge, this wicked, shameless judge, says that because this widow is troubling me, I will avenge her. Now, that that doesn't sound like That wicked of a judge. Until you understand the next statement. Lest by her continual coming she weary me. This is one place where I wish that in the English you got the exact literal translation of what is being said. Where we have weary me in the English, that is the Greek word that means to give someone a black eye. That is the same word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, I buffet my body, I beat myself into submission. That's the same word. It's the word that means to blacken a person's face. Now you understand why this wicked judge is responding to this widow. She is wearing him out. To the degree to which he feels like he has a black eye. Now, I just thought about this and thought about this and thought about this. And I started thinking about all the people who give me a black eye. (laughs) I started thinking about children. You know, you ever, you ever been in a situation where maybe you're having a conversation with a, with a family, uh, with young children, like talking to a mom? And she has like a three or four year old. And so you're trying to have a conversation with her. And, you know, her, her three or four year old sitting there on her lap. Hey, mom. Hey, mom. Hey, mom. But you're trying to talk over. Hey, mom. And then you're like, hey, mom. Hey, mom. Hey, mom. Hey, mom. They, they move your face over. And then they, as they grow, see, and, and they, they get smarter. They understand how we ignore them. They, they learn new techniques. Then, then pretty soon they, they, hey mom, hey mom, you don't answer. Hey Tony, Tony. I'm the first time my kids called me Tony. I'm like, what? But it worked. I turned around, see? And they're like, I mean, here they are, eight years old. They're like, I know how to get you, right? But I mean, it's when they want something, it's just on and on and on and on and on and on. Come on, can we, can we, can we, can we? Please, 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 can we, can we? Yeah, like you gotta, Black, he says, shut up. 
you know, stop. This widow knows how to persist and persist and persist and how to wear someone out. Now, I don't think anyone in this room would fit this category, but there are people who have this this gift, don't they? This wear you out gift. I mean, not none of you. Other people. Other people. Yeah, you know. They just call and call and call and call and call and call. You get home, they're in your driveway. Hey, pastor. Hey. You know. 10 o'clock at night. Ding dong. You know, ringing the doorbell. But not you. I mean, other people. Other people. I'll let you in on a little secret. The doorbell on my house, it lights up. It looks so good. But that sucker don't work. I mean, it looks like it works. But it doesn't work. You can ring that thing all you want. It is silence. Every time I go to fix it, now I just smile and go, nah. Just leave it like that. So this is the situation. She's wearying him to this point. Okay? Now Jesus is going to shift gears and start... Given us what we need. I mean, no one but the Lord could just in, in three short sentences say so much and then just leave me. I mean, all week just thinking, God, just, I can't possibly say in the amount of time we have everything I could say about what you could get out of these simple statements. Here he's going to give us some direction. Verse 6. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Now, here we really see, we know this in the beginning, but now he's really laying out that this is a parable of contrast. In other words, this is contrasting opposites in order to make the point that the Lord is trying to make. In other words, Jesus is telling us that God is nothing like this judge. That's what he wants you to see. Because sometimes we might read this and we might think, well, you know, this is this is the Lord teaching us that, you know, he's like this judge and that we should be like this widow. But verse 7 just declares with all certainty that that's not at all what this parable is saying. This parable is using opposites to show you what is. By illustrating what is not, it's showing you what really is. Look, God's not anything like this unjust judge. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, Do not fear, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Does that sound like this shameless judge who doesn't fear the Lord? This is why Jesus was so specific in giving us these two characteristics about the judge. So that we would be able to see that they're opposite characteristics of our Heavenly Father. That that our Heavenly Father, it's His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. What is this whole conversation about? When is the kingdom coming? Jesus said, well, it's... You don't need to fear. It's your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, your heavenly Father is not at all like this 
unjust judge. Your heavenly Father is, is the kind of God whose light is always on, whose door is always unlocked, who you can come to at any time, for any reason. You can bring your petitions to Him. He's always there, always available. He's never distracted. He doesn't, He's not off thinking about other things. That you see, He's the opposite of a judge that doesn't fear God, obviously because He is God. But then the fact that he has no regard for man. Now, wait a second. Why, why, does, why does Jesus say, well, he has no regard for man. He's shameless. Well, the cross declares the highest regard for man. That you see, our heavenly father is the opposite of this judge. The opposite. That he can't be inconvenienced. That you don't need to weary him to find an answer. Why does that sound kind of foreign? My suspicion is, is that our tendency would be to read this parable and to just plug ourselves right in and say, Jesus here is teaching that we need to pray like this widow Because he responds like this judge. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Why are our hearts so inclined to see our Heavenly Father as an unjust judge? Do we pray repeatedly? Do we repeatedly pray as if to inform God about the information regarding the circumstance that we're in? Do you find yourself in prayer telling God all the things He ought to know about a circumstance? See, that somehow it's permeated with this undertone of, if God really understood all the things, all the things that were at play here, He would answer this prayer. Don't we do that? Do we pray repeatedly to prove to God? How serious we are about something? In other words, if we pray once, well, we're not that serious. If we pray again, we're more serious. If we pray and pray and pray and pray, and then we think, so sometimes we get frustrated in our prayerfulness about a circumstance. Maybe you've been praying for years for a lost family member, and your frustration is, is that you think that God ought to respond to the fact that you have been praying and praying and praying for so long that in all the length, He ought to see, well, you must really mean it. As if you came to him one time with a broken heart. Oh, that's not good enough. You got to keep coming. Don't you see what that says? Don't you see that what that is communicating is a heart that's saying, God, you owe me. You see, I've prayed so much about something that I've earned the right for you to answer this prayer. But we do it. We see Him as an unjust judge. We pray repeatedly because we want God to respond to our zeal, our production in prayer. See, we feel like if we we pray a certain way, or if we pray in a certain place, or if we pray in a certain manner, that God's more apt to respond to that prayer because of the production of it, because of the zeal of it. We do. As if he was an unjust judge. As if he had no regard for man. 
Do we pray repeatedly believing that it's going to cause God to change His mind and to then see things our way because of our repeated prayerfulness? See, when I say it in this context, you really see how utterly ridiculous that is, don't you? That somehow the God of the universe, He may not get it. He may need our instruction. He may need us to earn it. He may need, He may need us to, to illuminate His mind to the reality of the situation. Then He might come around to our way of thinking and answer our prayer. Do you know what that is? That is idolatry. That is exactly the way the Bible portrays the prayer and worship of false gods. Exactly. And yet it goes on all the time. Remember Elijah? The prophet Elijah and the, the prophets of Baal and the confrontation on Mount Carmel. Remember that, First Kings? So there's uh, Elijah and, and uh, you know, the wicked king and his wicked wife Jezebel have killed all the, the, the prophets of God. And Elisha's the last one left. And, and so he's got all these Baal-worshipping prophets, all these false god prophets. And so he's pretty much at the end of his rope. And so he challenges them to this duel, if you will, on the side of Mount Carmel. And so the stage is set for this big moment where there's going to be this big showdown between... The God of Elijah versus the God of Baal. And how did those Baal worshipers pray? 1 Kings 18, verse 26. So they took the the bull which was given to them and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. Hear us, Baal. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which in which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. One of my favorite verses in Scripture. See? Humor and sarcasm is perfectly biblical. So... They respond by crying louder. They begin to cut themselves with knives and lances until blood gushed out of them. Don't you see? All they're doing is putting on a big show for their false God. They're going to try to pray in this big flamboyant way. And somehow they're going to convince their God to see their great need. They're going to somehow manipulate him emotionally and get him wrapped up in their circumstance so that he might come down and do what they want him to do. Which is so ridiculous, first of all, because the God of Baal doesn't exist. But second of all, it's even more ridiculous because if he did exist, what kind of a God would need to be persuaded by his followers, by all this nonsense, in order to get him to come down to show his own glory and power? But we pray all the time. Like we're praying to Baal. We try to inform God. We try to manipulate God. We try to, we try to plead our case in such a way that it's going to somehow work. We try to, to, to figure out some formula. Well, let's contrast that with the 
prayer of a man of God who knows God, who walks with God, who's God's child. Look at what happens. So Elisha, on the other hand, you know the story. He builds his altar. Of course, nothing happens when they pray to Baal. They just all get bloody and dirty and ridiculous. And then Elijah says, well, well okay, let's, let's build my altar. And then he says, now dump water on it. No, dump some more water on it. Nah, let's get more water. So basically, Hurricane Isaac goes on top of his little altar right there. And water's running all over the place. And then everybody's looking. They're thinking, there's no way that thing's ever going to burn. But how does he pray? Look at what the Bible says. Verse 36, and it came to pass at that time of the offering of evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Kaboom. Lightning comes down, licks up the altar, slurps up all the water, leaves nothing but dry ground there, and they're all standing there astonished. No no screaming, no wailing, no cutting, no dancing, no... Just says, God, here I am. Here's your altar. You can do this. Now show them. See, our Heavenly Father is not at all like this unjust judge. And at the same time, God's children are not at all like this widow. It's a parable of contrast. You see, I know the tendency. The tendency would be to say, now wait a minute, here's what's going on here. We're like the widow. This widow is pitiful and hopeless and destitute. And so we got to come to God pitiful and hopeless and destitute. Now, wait a minute. Yeah, kind of. When do you come to God pitiful, hopeless, and destitute? At salvation. That's when you come to God pitiful, hopeless, and destitute. You come to God, my way won't work. I've tried it. It's a failure. It's a flop. I have no chance apart from you. I cast myself upon you. But then what happens? Something changes. We just sang about it. It doesn't stay the same. You don't continue to pray that way. You're no longer that person. Then you're saved. You're justified. You're sanctified. You're glorified. You're adopted into His family. Your entire, everything about you changes in an instant. You're not that person anymore. You're not like this widow. If you're saved, you're the opposite of this widow. If you're saved, you were chosen by him, the Bible says. He has set his favor upon you, the Bible says. He's adopted you as his children. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who could be against us? That's nothing like this widow. That's nothing like this widow has no voice. She's not more than a conqueror. She, this widow can't say, well, nothing can separate me from the love of God. This widow has no one. She's alone. You don't pray like a widow. No. 
Paul says in Galatians, you're no longer a slave, you're a son. You're a daughter. You're in the family. Ephesians 2, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you're citizens with me, saints, members of my household. In other words, you at salvation, you at the moment that you cast your widow-like, pitiful, desperate, hopeless life at the foot of the cross, in that moment you became a citizen with the saints in heaven. That's a done deal. And not only that, you were in the household of God. And so for the rest of your existence, which is eternity, I might add, forever and ever and ever, you're not only indestructible, it's not only that you'll never die, but it's that who you are in Him will never change. It's, it's, it can't be altered. Your behavior can't modify it. No. It's done because you didn't do anything to make it happen. He did. So you can't do anything to undo it. What is prayer? Maybe what we need is a little lesson in just the basics. Maybe one of the problems that we have in approaching God like a widow speaking to him like he's an unjust judge, is that we don't really understand what happens when we pray. When we pray, first of all, we offer up our desires to God. Now, Psalm 62, 8 says this, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. What the scripture teaches is that me and you have hearts filled with desire. But we have a very hard time knowing which desires are righteous desires and which desires are unrighteous desires. Now, sometimes we know full well, but we choose to just desire that which is unrighteous and be in rebellion. But sometimes we come to God with pure motives and pure hearts, and we're not sure if what we desire is something we ought to desire or not. If it's in the will of the Lord, we just don't know. And the Bible says that when you pray, you bring your desires unto Him. And you know what you find? Refuge. You find refuge in Him. Do you know why you need refuge? We need refuge from our desires because we're not sure. So we come to God and we say, God, we trust you at all times. I trust you with my desires. And so in prayer, I'm going to get refuge under your protection because I know that you're good. And I know that you're able. So protect me, Lord, help me. What else happens? When we pray, we surrender our will to God. Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says that when we pray, we pray, Your kingdom come, come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, we come to God in prayer and we say, God, I'm surrendering my desires to You because I'm just not sure... Because if I was sure, then I wouldn't need to surrender to, surrender to you. All I need to be is doing it. See, if I already knew it was a righteous desire. In other words, you don't go to God and say, God, I'm, here I am. I'm in my prayer closet. I'm seeking your will, Lord. Now answer, here's my question. Do you want me to read my Bible? Duh. You don't have to pray about that. Just do it. But what happens when you, when you desire 
to be married. But you don't know. You don't know if, if this is the right person. You don't know how long to wait. You don't know what to do. So you have to find refuge in God. And then you surrender your will to His and say, God, your will be done, not mine, you. What else happens when we pray? When we pray, we come into the presence of the Lord. We enter into His presence. The Bible says this way in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that that will I seek. This is the one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. That in prayer, we are ushered into the presence of God in the same way that Old Testament saints understood They had to go into the physical temple. We're in the presence of God in prayer. That because the Spirit of God is within us, that we're in His presence, and then we can behold the glory of the Lord. And by the way, what happens when we're in the presence of God when we're praying? How does that work? If you just keep reading in Psalm 27, the psalmist is going to give you a clue. In verse 8, he says, When you said... The psalmist says to the Lord, when you said, seek my face, then what? My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. So as you're in the presence of God, as you're surrendering your desires to him, as you're giving over your will to his will, and you're there in his courts, then what? It's a dialogue you're entering into. That The Lord says, seek my face. My heart says. In other words, it's a two-way dialogue. You and the Lord are fellowshipping. You're having community together in prayer. I don't see anything in here about. You need to give God instruction about what ought to be. You need to perform in your prayer life. So that you can muster up God's emotion to respond to you. I don't see it. What I see is a loving, gracious God whose precious only son is moving towards crucifixion. He's, he's walking towards The slaughter. And yet in the midst of this moving, he's instructing his people about his goodness and his availability. And and he's saying, come on, come and find refuge in prayer. Come and commune with me in prayer. Come. And see what's good and righteous in prayer. Come. I'm here. I'm available. I love you. I have the highest possible regard for men and women. Because I love you. I created you in my image. I'm the very opposite of this judge. You see, when... In verse 7, when the Bible says, And shall God not avenge His own elect... See, Jesus is is going, okay, so maybe you don't get this. Maybe you need me to sort of stamp this thing home and make what's obvious even more obvious. Shall God not avenge 
His own elect, His own chosen people, His own beloved sons and daughters who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? Well, who is the them at the end of that verse? In verse 17, Jesus is talking to His Disciples, I mean, in chapter 17, Jesus started this dialogue with his disciples. And to them, as his disciples, he's saying, Now, would not God avenge his elect, his chosen people, his own children, the the one he gave everything for? How did they, how are they his elect? They're his elect through the sacrifice of his son. Is he not going to avenge them? Now, I think what might throw us off is the way the, the Bible says, who cry out day and night to Him. But we cry out to Him day and night. We do. But what you have to understand is how do we cry? Do we cry out to Him? Like lost pagan people who do not know God as their heavenly Father? Or do we cry out to Him differently? Let me illustrate it this way. If you were set to adopt a child from an orphanage, and all the children in the orphanage had been informed that you were about to come and visit the orphanage, and you would be the last family that would ever come to this orphanage, And so you would choose a child to adopt from this orphanage. And once you had chosen this child, once you had adopted this child, and once you left, there would be no more chances for any of the children left in the orphanage to be adopted. Now, here's my question for you. Would the crying out of the children, as you walked up the sidewalk, as you approached the front door, as they cried out to you, as they pleaded and begged with you, as they as they tried and clamored to get your attention and your affection, would it be the same as the way a year later after you had adopted that child, brought that child home, engulfed that child in your love, acquainted that child with your home and comfort and protection and provision, and the way your child in the security of knowing your mom, your dad, would it cry out in the same way it did that day at the orphanage? No! Those are two totally different crying out. You are no longer an orphan. You've been adopted. You're in the household of God. You eat at His table. You have all the provision of the King. So you cry out. You have need. You have sorrow. You have burdens. But you do not cry out as an orphan. He says, though, he bears long with them. This phrase, he bears long, is just bear with me. It's important. I I hate to just drag you through this, but you got to see this. This phrase is really a, a very unique word that usually is translated patience. In the scripture, whenever you come across the word patience, there's three Greek words used to to illustrate patience. And sometimes it's tolerance. Sometimes it's suffering. But sometimes it's makroth 
thumeo. Sometimes it's this complex word that's two words, not micro, but macro. Micro meaning close and specific. Macro meaning distant and far. And thumeo, which is where we get the word thermos. It, it, it has a, it means heat, but it means wrath. It means furor. It means anger. And so when Jesus says, though he bear with you long, he doesn't say, though he's patient with you in tolerance. He doesn't say, though he's patient in suffering. He says, no, I'm, I'm macro through male. I'm, I am, I am patient in that my wrath has been carried away distant from you. I am patient in you that I, I take the wrath from where it ought to be and I put it somewhere far, far away. Now, why does Jesus say this? Well, because he wants the hearers, he wants you and me to understand that his anger and his fury is remote while he is away. You see, he's yet to return. We're talking about the second coming. That's the whole context of everything Jesus is saying. And so he chooses this word because he knows that we have a tendency to lose heart as we're waiting for him to come. And the reason he says that while you wait, my fear is far from you is because he knows what our hearts are inclined to do. He knows how we want to twist it around and make him an evil judge. He knows how we want to say things like, well, God, you could have stopped this from happening, couldn't you? Well, yes. Well, then why didn't you? Why did you allow this to happen? I have done all these things. And yet I have cancer. I have been faithful to you. I have served you. And yet I suffer. I have been been tithing and working hard and doing all the things that a good person would do. And yet I lose my job. Yet I'm in financial ruin. Yet my marriage is suffering. Yet God, you could have stopped this, but you didn't. And why? And we shake our fist at God. And God's saying to you and me today, saying, listen, listen, my wrath is far from you right now. It's far from you. And I know that you're longing for me to come back and make everything right. But the reason, yes, yes, I could stop that from happening. Absolutely. Yes, I could stop all of the children that will be molested and raped today. God says I could stop that. I could stop all the starving that is going on around the world today. I could stop that. Yes, I could end cancer. Yes, I could end all the things that are bad and wrong and all the innocent people that suffer. I could end that today. But macro thumea. Don't you miss this. When I return, it's all over. When I return, all your questions will be answered. All of your suffering will disappear. All the things that you can't figure out will suddenly be fixed. But also, the reason that my wrath is far from you right now is because I want every one of those child molesters to come to me.
I want every one of those thieves and criminals to come to me. I want every one of those people who persecuted you to come to me. I want all the criminals and all the vagrants and all the derelicts. I want them all to come to me. I want all the terrorists. I want every tribe, every tongue, every nation to come to know my son Jesus. The door is open for salvation. I don't desire that any man, any woman, any child should perish. So right now, for today, as you wait for me, as you long for me, Macro through Maya, my wrath is far from you, but it's coming. It's coming. And when it comes, it's going to rain down. Because he just told us that. He just said that in chapter 17. Look at verse 26. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Oh, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Until that day, Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day, the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Don't you see the seriousness of this event? Look at verse 35. There's going to be two women side by side grinding wheat in the field together. One of them will be taken. The other one will be left. Two men will be left in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. It's coming. He's going to return. And listen, right now, his wrath is far from us. But when he returns to gather his children who never ought pray to him like a widow... Because you're not destitute. You're not alone. His wrath won't touch you. It won't harm you. It's not for you. It's been bore by His Son on a cross for you. Don't forget the most important thing about you. But everyone who doesn't know Him, everyone who's rejected Him, everyone who has hardened their heart, Romans says, against His vast mercy and glorious riches and grace will face Every ounce of that wrath. And so when you feel the need or the urge to shake your fist at God because some injustice, some evil has befallen you and you feel somehow you don't deserve that, that you have earned a right around that, remember something. Oh, yes, you have. But not today. Because in the forbearing love of God, who desires for all people to come unto Him, He holds back, He waits, He macrothumea all His wrath as people come unto Him. And so all we know is that in this moment, the door's open. That's all we know. Don't you see? When someone says, how could a loving God let evil exist on earth? I want to slap myself. I said, don't you see? It's His love. It's His grace. It's His mercy that lets evil happen. Because if He comes back right now, you don't have a shot. He's separated from you. This is not an unjust judge. This is a righteous and holy God who opens up His throne room of heaven and says, all of my children are welcome here. You come and go freely. Freely. There's no guard at the gate. 
No one's going to check your ID. I know you. I know everything about you. So when you come to me, you come as a son. You come as a daughter. You come as a family member. Come boldly into my courts. Pray big, audacious prayers. But don't don't whine like a widow. Don't nag and belittle God like He's going to somehow get emotionally wrapped up and switch gears. He's always right. He's always perfect. He's the author of perfection. He knows what you are in need of. And so, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is teaching us is that sometimes we don't get what we want because what we really needed was refuge from our desires. What we think we want is all we can see with our human eyes. But if you knew the beginning from the end, if you saw everything that had been accomplished and everything that was going on, you would say, well, certainly, certainly God is going to avenge His elect who cry out to Him day and night. Because they're His children And they cry out to Him just like your kids and my kids cry out to me. And I hear those voices different than any other voices. Because I love them different than any other voices. And because I'm compelled to do whatever I can do for them, any way I can do it, any time I can do it, I'll put myself out. I'll change my plans. I'll inconvenience myself. I'll go without. I'll do whatever it takes because I love them. That's your voice. Son, daughter, that's your voice. The difference is I'm human and limited in so many ways. And on my very best day, I'm nothing but a filthy rag compared to the righteousness of the perfect Heavenly Father that we have through Christ. You know, why does the Lord... End this by saying, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? I thought we were talking about prayer. Why the question of faith? Well, Jesus is teaching us that faith and prayer live and die together. They grow or they dwindle in unison. They're inseparable. You can't have weak prayer and strong faith or strong faith and weak prayer. It doesn't work like that. That prayer and faith are two in one. And so Jesus ends by saying, when I return, will I really? That's what he says. Will I really find faith on the earth? 
My favorite illustration on prayer comes from John Piper. He says it this way. He says that faith is the furnace of Christianity. It is the, the, the furnace that burns within us. And so faith represents our fire, our flame. And he says over here is the fuel for that fire. And the fuel for that fire is grace. And that this grace, when it is put into this furnace, burns like you wouldn't believe. But how do you get this grace into that furnace? And he says, prayer is the shovel. You see, you shovel grace into your faith when you pray. And you burn for God. And you walk with Him. And you talk with Him. Sometimes, even in light of all that we know to be true, even after all I've said this morning, sometimes... We can lose heart. We can get discouraged. And we can think God just doesn't hear us and He's not listening to us. And I end with a plea to those of you in this room who right now are thinking to yourself, Pastor, that may be true for you, but you don't know my story. Paul would answer you in Ephesians 2. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. That everything in that promise is past tense. Everything that Paul just said is done and completed. That you, I love you, you're my family. If you know God as Savior, please know you are seated in the heavenly places. You are where you belong already. You don't have to wait. You're there. No one else can take your place at the table. No one else can pretend to be you and sit down where the sign has your name. No one else can defraud you out of your citizenship. It's done. It's finished. And it was all done in His glorious mercy because He loved you and He loved me. And now all of these things are true because of what He did in His love on that cross for wicked people who still, still want to call Him a wicked judge. He says, come on, get this.
You're here today. You're here today. Because God wanted you to know who He is and who you are and how the two of you are to interact. That's why you're here. And so if you don't know the Lord as your Heavenly Father, then you come this morning as a widow and you throw yourself at the feet of the cross and you say, God, I have no other hope apart from you. And in His forbearing wrath, He'll save you, adopt you, grant you life eternal. And you'll never, ever, ever cry out to Him like an orphan again. If you know Him, then all I've got to say to you this morning is don't ever lose heart. Don't ever give up. Don't ever forsake the invitation to pray. What a glorious, unbelievable gift we have in prayer. Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes. Father, we thank You for Your glorious Word. Lord, we thank You for how You instruct us and teach us, Lord God. And as Your people now, at this time, Father, we, we want to respond. We want to respond in truthfulness to what we've heard, Lord. And so, Father, will You, will you just take away every hesitation, every barrier, every, every resisting spirit within us, Lord God? And just remind us again, afresh and anew right now. As we stand, heads bowed, eyes closed, will you just remind us of who you are? As you stand, arms open, saying, come. Come, son. Come, daughter. I love you. You're mine. Come. And Father, will you do what only you can do in Jesus' name? Amen. The altar is...